Welcome back, listeners, to the Brain Train Podcast. Uh, I'm your host for this episode, Martin Zolt-Sorstrick, and if you can cast your mind back, you might remember our first guest uh, of this episode because she was here last time. Sure, I'm Kajin Gainty. I'm a lecturer at King's College London, and I work in the history of medicine, especially American medicine and medical aesthetics. So, on the other side of the table, we've brought in an expert in a very different field. Justin, would you like to introduce yourself and your specialty? Yeah, of course. I'm Justin Bates. I'm a barrister specialising in housing law, and I'm the deputy editor of the Encyclopedia of Housing Law. So, why have we brought together this meeting of minds, Cajun? Well, we um, arrived here last August and um, had a, you know, sort of a crash course in in housing, or bad things that can happen to you in London. Mm. when you're renting, and I got really curious about how um, how this how it came to be that mm. it seemed what seemed to us was that landlords had so much power, and I was really curious about how that came to be. And also, when you have a housing problem, what can you do about it? So that was sort of how it all came together for me. Yeah, in in, in twenty minutes, so it's not to make everyone fall asleep. Um, yeah, I suspect your your experience is pretty common. Um, if we just take it just a step back to try, try and explain what happened, what used to happen, and then sort of explain what the situation that we're in now, um, there's basically two big stages to, to private sector housing in, in England and Wales: um, 1915 through to 1977, and then 1988 onwards. Um, 1915 to 1977, you've got this this whole line of, 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 of acts of Parliament, collectively known as the Rent Acts which are governing the private rented sector. Um, and throughout this entire period, you've got all the major political parties who are basically committed to renting as a secure and stable form of tenure for, for large numbers of people in this country. So there's, um, for example, the 1929 Labour Manifesto says that they'll be building plenty of homes to, to let at working-class rents. So the idea is, is cheap property with quite a high degree of security. Um, Partly that was a, a political decision, partly it was an economic one. Um, most people just couldn't afford to buy their own property. So it's, it's only about 30% owner-occupied in this country in, in the interwar period. And, and th- there was a consensus across the board that there should be a control on rents and a high degree of tenant security. So even when you had Tory governments and they would do little things to, to liberalise the market, there was still a general agreement that, that renting should be an attractive option. So the... Um, the 1951 uh, Tory uh, manifesto, for example, whilst it was generally committed to, to building more properties for, for buying and living and owner occupation, quite clear that there was going to be no reduction in the number of houses and flats built to let. The, the, the effect of this was twofold. Firstly, you had a very, very high degree of security of tenure, so the landlords couldn't just, just evict you. Um, there were a series of, of what were called cases set out in the rent acts of when you could be evicted. So case one would be, for example, a breach of the term of the tenancy, or case two was antisocial behaviour, or case three was if you were damaging the property, causing waste, as the lawyers put it. And if you wanted to evict a rent act tenant, you had to prove, firstly, that the case was made out. You had to prove there had been a breach of the tenancy or prove waste, etc. Then you had to prove generally that it was reasonable to make an order for possession, because it might be that your breach was tiny. It might be that, yes, I am in rent arrears, but it's £2. It's not reasonable to make a possession order. 
even if it was reasonable to make a possession order, you then had to go on to show that it had to be an immediate order, not one that could be dealt with on some kind of suspension. So are these, are these still in place, these protections? Yeah, the rent tax still exists. Um, and this broad model of cases giving right, or grounds for possession, as they're called now, we'll, we'll come on to these in the 1988 Act, they get copied through. But the rent tax still exists. It's, um, you can't create any new ones after 1988. Right. But everyone who had one before 1988 has still got one. So the Law Commission think uh, that there's probably about 100,000 rent-act tenants still in the country. Oh, wait, so you had to have an existing tenancy with that built into it? No, no, no. no. The, oh. way, the, the, way, the way it worked was that if, you, if we were in 1976 renting a property, I am the landlord and you are the tenant, we, we would sign a tenancy agreement and it would say whatever it wanted to say. It didn't really matter the contractual term because what the rent-act said was that these are the terms that take effect. Right. So you can't, no matter what the contract says... You can't kick me out unless you can prove case one, case two, yeah, case three. Yeah, yeah. No matter what the contract says, um, the fact that the time expires on it doesn't matter. You've still mm. got to go on and do all that. Um, okay. So that's a minority, hundred thousand. Yeah, it's about a hundred thousand of those left in in in, in, the, uh, in the in England and Wales. Um, the other big aspect was rent control. So in addition to a very high degree of security of tenure that you couldn't contract out of, there was rent control, and the rent was set uh, by the rent officer and he was setting what's called the fair rent, in which he had to discount scarcity. So the fact that lots of people wanted this property and therefore would drive the market price up, he had to discount that. He had to set the rent based purely on what the property was like, its condition, its location, wow. the furniture and such. That doesn't sound very Thatcherite. Uh, not, not particularly. I mean, I, in, in fairness, it did give rise to some problems, because it did mean that you got rents that were miles below the market level and yeah. it did provide it did lead to some really really serious problems of investment because who in their right mind would build property to rent at significantly below the market rate banks didn't want to lend against it for building um you've got quite a few rent act landlords just selling the property to the tenants because that was cheaper than trying yeah. to maintain yeah. a tenancy yeah. and as a general um, idea, you got down to about 9% of the market being private rented sector because people just left the market. Mm. Um, it was great for tenants. You, had, you got the rent act tenancies. They had very high degree of security of tenure and they had controlled rents, but there weren't more properties coming on stream. Mm. So that, there was a problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that was what the, they tried to change in 1988. I want to hear about this. It sounds like an um, enormous cataclysm that happened in 1988. You bet, and all of this was swept aside. Right. Well, it was. You couldn't create new ones. The Housing Act 1988 right. said you could not create a, a rent tax tenancy ever again, save for some tiny, tiny residual exceptions. Mm. But it, it's almost impossible to create one now. Um, and they created the Rent in 1988 Act creates what is now the default model for renting in this country, what's called the assured shorthold tenancy which is effectively the polar opposite of the rent-act tenant. Firstly, you've got no real security of tenure. The only restriction is that there can't be a possession order in the first six months. But in terms of the right to possession, they created, rather than these, these very detailed, you must prove a breach, prove it's reasonable, and prove that the order should, should be immediate. Whilst you could still do that if you wanted to, there's a much better way of doing it under the 1988 Act if you're a landlord. There's a notice-only ground. So if you're the landlord and you give two months' notice, tenant has to go. No proving any fault, no proving anything. Your reasons can be as simple as, I could relet it for more money. So it introduced, wow. firstly, that immediate right to possession. Well, yeah. two months' notice right to possession. Second thing was the, the abolition of rent control. 
rent is, is now set not at the fair rent, but at the market rent. You can appeal it to the rent officer if you want, but given that he sets it at the market rent, and therefore includes scarcity, mm. chances are you will end up paying exactly what right. was proposed under the, under the contract. Um, and that, the 1988 Housing Act, is the default model for private renting in England and Wales. Um, it was... It, there was a technical change in 1996, which I won't go into because it would just bore everyone too much, which made the short-haul tenancy almost... Uh, not quite impossible for landlords not to grant, but landlords, if they want to give you any higher rights, have actually now got to go out of their way to do it. And there's no reason why they would. Why would they do yeah, that? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, there's no reason whatsoever. Um, in practical terms, a private sector landlord is not going to offer you any higher rights than are in an assured shorthold tenancy. One, why would you? Two, if they're buy-to-let landlords, their mortgages won't let them. Their mortgage companies normally impose conditions that you are only allowed to grant an assured shorthold tenancy. So in the first, you said in the first six months, or it's six months, yeah. the landlord can't ask you... To leave, he can ask you to leave. He can give you the notice, but you. But the court won't make a possession order until so, until the six months. Until six is months up. is up, yeah. So, so what? So what you used to get a lot of is on the day you sign the tenancy agreement, the landlord also gives you the notice, hmm. because that way, the moment six months are up, he can trot off to court and get his possession order. Right. Right. Um, for various reasons, that's more difficult to do now, um, as a result of some some technical amendments to a tenancy deposit scheme legislation, but. In practical terms, landlords can, and indeed in my experience do, at a very early stage of the tenancy, give you the notice, mm -hmm. so as to put all the power in their hands to decide when they're going to evict you. Um, right. Which is not good. No, that's um, really not good. So it's the lack of security of tenure. That's a real problem. It's, basic, it's, it's not quite at sufferance, because they have to go to court, they have to get a possession order. They can't just turn up and kick you out. That would be a crime. But you've got no... No right to remain simply because you want to stay there. Right. The fr you don't have to break any term of the tenancy. You could be fully paid up with your rent. You could be a model tenant. He could just want it back because he doesn't like you. Right. Or because he thinks you can rent it out for a higher for a higher sum. Right. And as long as he gets the notice right, gives you the requisite period of time, you have to go. So what happens if he he, as happened in our case, in mm. fact, um, he he asked us to leave in November, mm. and we left in. December. Yeah. And that was before six months was up. Mm. And he was very angry about that. He wanted us to stay until February for some reason, or January or February or something like that. As though that, that, that there was something that was being fulfilled by us staying there for that length of time. Is that... I imagine he just wanted rental income. If, okay. if, if he asked, so it's just about if he asked that. you to leave and you yeah. decided to leave... Um, I'm not How reasonable of you? I'm not entirely <laughs> sure why he would object to you doing what he wanted Yeah, I to. think it probably was just the loss of income. Um, yeah, having to find somebody else to fill the yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, there is a problem, again, that there's a lot of very small landlords, in, particularly in London. They own one or two properties. They are very heavily leveraged, and what they consider void periods, so no tenant in the property, but they're paying their mortgage. They don't have a lot of leeway, um, and it's going to get very bad for them when mortgage rates go up because they're going to find that void periods become really, really difficult for them. Right. Um, Doesn't that incentivise them to not be complete dickheads? You would think. Um, housing demand is, is so high in London that, frankly, you could, you could do whatever you wanted. Um, the demand is just off the charts wow. Wow. for rented property. In London, and I would suggest probably every other big city, you can, 
you could let some pretty dire property and get it let fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the big cities, it's not as bad, but in the big cities, you, th- there's there's no suggestion the market is driving quality in any way, shape, or form. Um, I mean, the housing stats again. Sorry, I'm, I know I'm going on a bit, but the housing stats in, in this country are terrible. Um, before, in, in 1969, you're building about 150,000 private sector properties a year. Some of those will be buy to occupy, some of them will be buy to rent. Last year, the private sector built 103. It's just dropping off all the way. The highest the private sector's ever got to in the last 50-odd years is 196,000. Given that we need 200,000 to stand still, the private sector just isn't building anything like enough. Right. Um, it's what it's, was it's that? not good. Um, that I don't know, I'm afraid. Um, I've never been persuaded there's a great institutional incentive to invest in private sector housing because the returns aren't great given the amount you need to spend to buy a, to build a house. Mm. It takes a long time to get the money back. I'm also not entirely sure why, as a private investor, you would invest in private housing, building it from scratch, because you're so vulnerable to changes in, in policy. Suppose, for example, which is not off the wall, the next government brings back in something like rent-out levels of security and rent-out levels of rents, yeah. and you've spent a lot of money to build a house that suddenly find rent controls introduced. Would you really want to do that? Um, I mean, the reality this is, is that the private sector can't and shouldn't be trusted to provide all the housing in this country. It's not what it's there for. It's the private sector is there to make money. It's not there to meet to meet need particularly. Mm-hmm. The reality is, you need a range of tenures. You need much more social housing from local authorities, from housing associations. You need more buy to uh, occupy owner occupier stuff, um, and you need a, a range of rent of rental options in the private sector as well. Um, we just don't have anything like a coherent housing policy, and I don't think we have in my lifetime, or I doubt we will, frankly, in the next ten years. Mm. I'm afraid. Um, I mean, there are, there are there are other problems that it's brewing and need to be dealt with. But I don't want to depress everyone so much. I mean, it's already quite depressing. It is really. <laughs> so, I mean, how was that, that time with your experience in the US? I guess there's a whole set of different pressures. Where well, you're from? I mean, I think uh, we've lived in several big cities mm. my husband lived in New York City and I was in Boston and then we both lived in Chicago and it was really interesting how different it was from place to place in New York City and Boston the housing market is crazy but in Chicago it's actually much more reasonable mm. and you can really you know it's a really big city but it has you know really spacious housing actually mm. you know whenever we filled out contracts for housing before it's always full of these things you know you have you know as a tenant you have the right to x y and z and we have to tell you that there's lead paint or not lead paint or you know we've got it like all of these things that have to be up front told to you up front um i you know so you can't sue i suppose right mm-hmm. for for finding lead paint when you know no one has said there's no lead or when you know lead paint is not supposed to be there or whatever but um but it's always put in this language where, you know, you as the tenant have the right to ha- and expect that your landlord will do all, you know, mm. do basic, you know, maintenance, will, you know, rent you a place that has what they say it will have, you know, those kinds mm. of things. And and I think, um, you know, our, our experience here was that that was absolutely not the case. And, and, and the, our, the particular thing that was um, sort of the sticking point for us was that the drains in the place that we rented didn't work at all they'd actually been cemented shut in construction and so there was no there was nowhere for wastewater to go 
essentially. So it was all over the, all over the courtyard in front of in front of our building, and it was a new construction. And we, um, you know, went like asked I think reasonably that somebody do something about the drains so that we could actually use the bathrooms and and things and not have to walk through really disgusting puddles of water when we went out in the morning and and we were sort of told well yes we'll repair that as we have time to repair it but it's not our fault that it was you know the the drains you know they they built the they built the place but um it's not our fault that the drains are like that because it was a pre-existing thing or you know and and we'll take care of it but we'll take care of it you know when we have time to take care of it and things like that and so that was sort of a problem, but we thought, well, if they get fixed, you know, then that's the main thing. But instead, we started to get a- abusive phone calls from our landlord telling us that, you know, we'd done all of these terrible things, and probably it was our fault that the drains were cemented shut. And, uh, and are, are you in the habit of pouring cement down your, yeah. down your plug hole? <laughs> you wouldn't think Doesn't so, but, you know, exactly. <laughs> you never know. We've all been there. Um, yeah, so it was sort of that sort of situation, and then and then finally we complained to the borough council and just said, could somebody just come and verify that this is an environmental hazard, because it was really it was really pretty bad, um, and they came and they said, yes, it is clearly an environmental hazard, and then and that's when he started getting really upset because we'd reported him, and so said that, and that's really what prompted him to tell us that we had to get out immediately, or you know, just absolutely as soon as we could because he couldn't trust us. And so over many conversations with him, he seemed to be, he sort of indicated that there was, you know, that that was all there was, you know, that it it was all, you know, if he didn't want to give us our money back, it was because we didn't deserve it. And he was calling the shots on this. And so then we, you know, we had all of these, the, the, he owns the buildings all around there too. Mm -hmm. And so all of these people then said, we're so sorry, we just heard what happened. Here's what happened to us. And of course it's, you know, another really horrific Mm. story about this guy. So what are the protections for that sort of situation? Right, exactly. Say, you, so you, you need to go and talk to a lawyer. Um, <laughs> you, you have a very reasonable rate, I'm sure. <laughs> um, right, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things coming out of that. Um, you, you are right that there isn't anything like... There's no sort of consumer protection focus in terms of in-tenancy agreements saying this is what your rights are. You do have certain rights. They're not great, but you do have certain uh-huh. rights. But there's no culture of putting it up front. There's no consumer protection focus. Um, the government is trying to change that. Um, it has said it will produce a charter, which will effectively be a nice, helpful crib sheet for people to tell them what their rights are. In terms of the repair rights, um, repairing rights are not great, to be frank, as a tenant, um, unless the contract gives you some particular rights, which it won't, because no landlord in his right mind will ever say will ever grant you any particular rights. Yeah. The only rights you've got are those that are found in the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, which is a, a de minimis baseline um, of repairing obligations. And he's effectively got to keep the structure and the exterior in good repair. And he's got to keep um, pipes and such like free for the flow of water. The problem is that's incredibly limited. Your best option is actually what you did, which is to get the local authority involved. Mm-hmm. Um, the local authority have powers under the Housing Act 2004 if they find various hazards. Um, it depends on how dangerous the hazards are as to what their powers are. But the more dangerous the hazard, um, they've got a power to serve a notice on him requiring him to do certain works. If he doesn't do it, they can do it in default and recharge him. Mm-hmm. Mm. Those tend to be things that get landlords' attention. One, because um, they might find they've got to pay some money and the local authorities generally want to get their money back in. Right. Um, secondly, because there can be prosecutions, including criminal prosecutions, and they don't really want criminal convictions. 
because, tying into the third point, if you've got criminal convictions, you're not generally regarded as a fit and proper person for the purposes of landlord licensing. And certain kinds of property do need a licence to, to label the landlord to let them. Mm-hmm. Generally, houses in multiple occupation. Mm-hmm. The most common HMO that I expect most people listening to this will come across is student accommodation. So where you've got three or four people who aren't related renting together. Yeah. And you need licences to be able to do that. And you can only have a licence if you're a fit and proper person. And if you've been convicted of being a slumlord, you're not generally regarded <laughs> as a fit and proper person. Right. There are some local authorities that would still, I'm sure, allow you to do it. Um, the deposit... Um, he's on ropier ground with. Um, this is one of the few areas where tenants do have some good rights. Um, you've got the right, if you if pay a deposit at the start of a tenancy agreement, mm-hmm. he's got to put it in a, a special tenancy deposit account. And there's right. two ways of doing that. Yeah. He's either got to put it in what's called a custodial scheme, effectively, it's a, like a, a third party trust account that holds the money until the end of the tenancy, or he's got to go for the insurance schemes where he's got to buy an insurance policy, which is in your favour to pay the deposit back if he runs off with it. And then at the end of the tenancy, the scheme administrators resolve disputes about who's entitled to what. Mm-hmm. If he didn't protect it in, the, in, the, in one of these two schemes, um, two things happen to him. Firstly, he can't use the, the notice-only, two-months notice ground for possession okay. until he puts the money in the deposit scheme. So that's often, in practice, a big incentive to make them protect the deposits. Secondly, if they don't protect it, you're entitled to sue him in the county court and he has to pay you damages of between one and three times the value of the deposit. Mm. What really worried me in what you said is is a, a, a burgeoning problem that, to my shame, the American the Americans are better at dealing with than we are, which is retaliatory eviction, which is where you complain to your landlord and say, there is something wrong with this property, it has got pigeon infestation or whatever. Yeah. And he says, you're a difficult tenant, here's a two-month notice, get out. Yeah. Mm. And that is a real, real problem. Um, it is finally getting some uh, parliamentary attention. Um, the government has indicated that they do agree it's a bad thing and they want to think about what they could do to, st- to, to stamp it out. Um, we haven't had any concrete proposals for them yet. Uh, hopefully that's something they'll be looking at over the next couple of years. Mm. Um, it is a real problem because there is absolutely no point having even these limited rights if the moment you try and exercise them, right. you get evicted. Right. Um, but I, I'm afraid your, your experience just, just isn't that uncommon. Right, um, that's what I've learned, yeah. Had you had a lawyer, I suspect we could probably have done some things for you. I suspect we'd been able to get the deposit back. I suspect we'd have been able to get some certain amounts of compensation for disrepair and such like. We did actually have a lawyer. But okay. It didn't really it didn't actually come to anything. And actually they said, you know, if he wants to go to court, it's not in your interests to do that it's too expensive not not privately paying I completely agree because yeah. the, sum, the sums of money involved won't be enough to make it worthwhile exactly yeah um, and the uh, the government has massively restricted legal aid for this area so it seems as though that the, the idea is that if the landlord just refuses if they just says I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deal I'm not mm-hmm. gonna you know talk to a lawyer or talk to your lawyer and make some sort of deal then they win essentially, right? Yeah, in if, practice, there isn't a lot you can do. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's terrible, but that is the answer. Yeah. Um, again, there are. It's really interesting what's going on in Wales. That the Welsh. Well, this, this is a devolved issue in housing, so the Welsh government get to play around with it a bit. The Welsh are currently looking at introducing landlord licensing for all landlords in Wales. So if you want to be a landlord or you want to be a letting agent in Wales, you're going to have to have a license and they will set conditions requiring you to meet certain standards. Mm. Those will be, I strongly suspect, written tenancy agreements setting out your rights. 
there will be no convictions for dishonesty or, or such like. Um, yeah. If that gets through the Welsh Assembly, it'll be interesting to see if England can resist the temptation to follow suit. Mm. Um, would that have a big impact? Would that really would that make a significant difference? It. I suspect it will make a difference in terms of. Uh, firstly, border authorities. If you're Bristol and you're trying to persuade people to come and live in your area, mm. you are at a competitive disadvantage oh, I see. in yeah. that regard. And if I was the MP for Bristol and I find that all of my bright young graduates are moving to work in Cardiff, I might be tempted to go and talk to Secretary of State about that. Mm. If I was Bristol Council, finding I can't get employees because all the bright young graduates want to go and work for Swansea Council, yeah. I can see that being a problem. Mm. I think it also gives... Uh, Labour or the Lib Dems who are most likely to introduce any of these kind of reforms. If it works somewhere else, it gives them a reason to follow suit. Yep. Um, mm. It will be interesting to see if it does if it goes through in Wales. It, this is this is the most controversial bit of the Welsh reforms. It's, right. it's been fought okay. quite hard in the Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, if it goes through, then it might well be that five, ten years down the line, you get five, some kind of development. That's the, that's the reality, <laughs> I'm afraid. Well, that's, um, that's, a, that's a, a small sliver of hope to grasp onto as we come to the end of... This is, this is one of the most depressing podcasts we've done, and we've talked about really climate sorry. change quite extensively. <laughs> um, no, no, thank you very much. Um, this is the point, I think, uh, where we would ask you... Uh, actually, it seems like there's a laundry list, but is there a specific question you would ask your profession or your field? It's, it's, it's two, if that's all right. That's a bit greedy. Um, yeah. I, I'm always slightly cautious about asking lawyers for policy advice, because the nature of what we do is we see disasters. Hmm. Things only end up on my desk because they've gone wrong. Yeah, but it's, uh, in this case, it seems like disaster is the, exce- is the world than the exception. Well, what I would ask for is a coherent housing policy mm. addressing what seems to me to be, at the moment, far too much power in favour of landlords right. without going back to what it was under the rent tax, which by the end of it wasn't working either. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish there would be a coherent policy that all the parties could agree on and leave it be for a period of time. Yeah. Um, for my profession, it's, I think it's a bit more difficult um, because, of course, we don't get to make the rules. We only get to, to deal with them once Parliament's enacted them. Yeah. One thing I wonder that, that perhaps my profession needs to think about a lot more is how we're going to respond to very, very real access to justice concerns. Because it is, very, it is almost impossible to enforce your rights in this area without a lawyer. Mm. The Encyclopedia of Housing Law will tell you all of your rights. It is 26 inches long and takes up six volumes. Unless you are a lawyer and know where everything is in it, you can't practically use it. Yeah. And we've got to think quite hard about how we're going to respond to that, given that legal aid is not gone for this area, but it's much less generous than it once was. Mm. And we've got to think about how we ensure access to justice. Two very good questions. It just remains for me to say thank you to both of our guests, Justin and Kachin. And we will be back uh, for our next episode with Justin and a brand new brain for the brain train. Mm.